Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everybody, to the Lakers Legacy Podcast, where play in and out. That's what our ham Lakers all about. Because against all odds, and at times, even against their own front office, your 2022-23 Los Angeles Lakers have scraped and clawed their way into, at the very least, a play-in berth, and now have a legit shot of making a run in the playoffs if everyone stays healthy. I'm your host, Jonathan Hernandez, and today I'll be doing a quick solo pod to address the penultimate state of the Lakers, who are now 42-39, and ahead of their last game at home versus the Utah Jazz, as they look set to play in the 7-8 versus game on Tuesday for the first round of the play-in. With a slight outside chance at still nabbing the sixth seed should the Lakers beat the Jazz and the Shaden Sharp and Drew Eubanks-led Blazers pull out the win against the Warriors. Or if the Clippers lose both of their games today and tomorrow. I am recording this podcast prior to the Clippers playing the Portland Trail Blazers. But yeah, given what the Blazers did to the Timberwolves last Sunday, anything is possible, I guess. But on today's quick episode, I will be talking about the Lakers' likely play in prospects and outlook. I'll talk about some of my slight concerns and worries heading into a pretty huge play in week. And then we'll close the show out with some intriguing team and player stats that have caught my eye recently, whether for better or for worse. But yes, first and foremost, huge flowers to Anthony Davis and LeBron James who have busted their asses this whole season and literally put their bodies on the line dragging an imbalanced and poorly constructed roster into a state of enough competence midseason to force the front office's hand to eventually honor those efforts. And flowers to Rob Palinka. thank God the front office did exactly that, because all of the new guys they compiled and assembled have done their job to a T, and Anthony Davis said as much when he thanked all of them for helping save the season in last night's post-game interview versus the Suns. This has been a wild roller coaster of a journey. It was far from pretty to get to this point. And even most recently, these last few games have been very sloppy to say the least. But all in all, all that matters is we somehow got here and even exceeded some of our higher end expectations considering the context of LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and D'Angelo Russell all taking turns sitting out. So all in all, what a turnaround. 
Alright, before we dive into the Lakers' play-in situation, let's get into some interesting macro team stats first, just to outline this team's progress. So, the Lakers are now 42-39. and 39. Since their 2-10 start, the Lakers have gone 40-29, and 29, 11 games over 500. That record and that win pace from mid-November onward was tied with the 9th best record in the whole league, and would have been the 4th best record in the West behind the Grizzlies, who went 42-26, and 26, the Kings, who went 43-27, and 27, and the Nuggets, who went 44-24 and 24 during that same stretch. The Lakers are 4th at 40-29. and 29. That is a legit top 4 team in the West from mid-November to this point on. According to McTen, the Lakers also became the first team since the Nets and Bulls in 2004-2005 to start their season off 2-10 or worse and somehow come away finishing with a winning record. The Lakers, since the All-Star break, also have the best record in the Western Conference at 15-7. That is also the fourth best record in the entire league as a whole behind the 16-8 Kings, the 16-8 Grizzlies, and the 17 and 6 Bucks who sit at number 1. Just imagine if Maxi Kleber hadn't hit that buzzer beater and the Lakers hadn't tricked off that Rockets game. Regardless, what a post All-Star break run it has been for the Lakers. Getting into some advanced stats. Since the All-Star break, the Lakers have the 15th best offensive rating at 115.9, but They have the second-best defensive rating, tied with the Pelicans at 111.3, just behind the number one Celtics at 110.2. In comparison, prior to the All-Star break, the Lakers were 20th in offensive rating and 18th in defensive rating. So that is a plus-16 ranking jump on the defensive end. So credit to Darvin Ham and the coaching staff and obviously some of the new guys like Vanderbilt and Rui for really buying in on that end of the court, despite being underweight relative to some of the bruising bigs that every team in the NBA has. One other stat that I want to specifically highlight goes back to three-point shooting. And this goes back to the importance of the Lakers trading for some legitimate shooters, regardless of how volatile their percentages may be. Malik Beasley, I'm looking at you. But prior to the All-Star break, the Lakers were 29th in the league in three-point makes at 10.4 makes a game. They were also 26th in percentage at 33.7% from three. Since the All-Star break, the Lakers are 20th in three-point makes, hitting 11.3 a game, so a nine-ranking jump. And then when it comes to three-point percentage, they are 16th at 36.7%. They're attempting the same number of threes per game that they were prior to the All-Star break at 31, but now they are hitting nearly one three-point more per game and shooting three percentage points higher per game. And that stat obviously doesn't include the gravity and spacing that you see on the court with guys like D'Lo, Beasley, and even Rui Hachimura, um, and the ways that they've been able to open up the floor for LeBron James and Anthony Davis. So, So I don't even think this team has shot to their highest potential when it comes to three-point shooting, but even just this sort of middling, mediocre level has risen the entire team as a whole when it comes to three-point shooting, given the fact that, you know, we jumped to 16th in three-point percentage and jumped nine spots when it comes to three-point makes, i.e. we are now a modern NBA team. So yeah, what a turnaround for the Lakers in more ways than one. All right, so let's now talk about the Lakers' current play-in situation. 
As it stands, the Lakers are in 7th place in the Western Conference at 42-39. and 39. They hold the tiebreaker over the New Orleans Pelicans, who are also at 42-39. and 39. Thank you, Laker legend Matt Ryan, who should probably still be on the team because his roster spot hasn't been filled. But yes, the Pelicans are in the 8th spot. They face the Timberwolves tomorrow to determine whether they stay at that 8th spot or move down. The Clippers are in the 6th spot with a 42-38 and 38 record. They are currently playing right now versus the Blazers, and then tomorrow they play the Phoenix Suns. We shall see if Kawhi Leonard even plays that back-to-back. All we know is, we actually want the Clippers to win out. Because if they lose at least one game, and the Lakers and Pelicans win out, and there happens to be a three-way tie between the Clippers, Lakers, and Pelicans, the Lakers would actually be bumped down to the eighth spot, the Clippers assuming the 7th spot, and then the Pelicans somehow assuming the 6th spot. Because then the tiebreaker in a three-way tie like that goes to the combined win-loss record against both of the other teams you're competing against. And against the Clippers and Pelicans, the Lakers have the worst combined record. So it doesn't matter if they have the tiebreaker over the Pelicans. The Pelicans in a three-way tie with the Clippers and Lakers would shoot up to 6, Clippers would get 7, and Lakers would be bumped down to 8th and wouldn't have home court advantage in the first play-in game. Now, again, if the Warriors somehow lose their game to the Blazers on Sunday and the Lakers beat the Jazz, there is a chance the Lakers slip into the 6th seed and avoid the play-in altogether. They can also do that if the Clippers go 0-2 and the Lakers win against the Jazz. So that would obviously be the most preferred situation. It's just looking unlikely right now. So as it stands, looking at these teams' final game slash games, it's looking more and more probable that the Lakers stick at number 7 with home court advantage in the first game of the play-in with their number 8 opponent to be determined between the Minnesota Timberwolves and the New Orleans Pelicans' final game on Sunday. If the Timberwolves win today versus the Spurs and then win tomorrow versus the Pelicans, they will move into the 8th spot and face the Lakers in the first play-in game. If the Wolves win today but then lose to the Pelicans tomorrow, the Lakers would then get the Pelicans. So... Under that premise, between the Wolves and New Orleans Pelicans, who would I prefer to face? Well, to me, this is kind of easy. I want the Pelicans. And if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you've heard me bemoan the fact that the Lakers lack a true enforcing bruising big. And you've seen the stats that I pulled on Twitter with regards to how mediocrely the Lakers have fared against teams who have at least one true traditional center. Say what you will about the lopsided Jazz and Wolves deal for Rudy Gobert, but the Wolves still do have Rudy Gobert, who has like a 7'6 wingspan, and they do still have Carl Towns, regardless of whether or not Carl Towns likes to operate on the perimeter. On top of those two twin towers, the Timberwolves also have some very lanky and strong wings in Anthony Edwards, Jaden McDaniels, and Torian Prince. They are a bit of a matchup nightmare for us size-wise, and I just do not want Anthony Davis, LeBron James, Jared Vanderbilt, and Wenyan Gabriel to have to bang down low and scrap for rebounds against the Wolves' twin towers and potentially get more wear and tear on their bodies before round one of a seven-game series. Now, the Lakers got the best of the Wolves in Minnesota last time, but if you'll remember in that game, through three quarters, the Wolves were essentially punking us in the paint, and AD went down with an ankle injury for about three possessions, Vanderbilt even went down for a little bit, and 
we just look like a bunch of ragdolls compared to the Timberwolves' size. That and half of the Timberwolves' team during that game was sick. So at full strength and full health, I'd rather not have to face the Twin Towers in the play-in and all the wings that they have. Now, Mo Bamba obviously helps, but I don't think by that much because Mo Bamba is still sort of a frailer center. Even though he has the length with his 7'9 wingspan, he can still sort of get pushed around in the paint. On top of the fact that he still needs ramp-up time, he's never been to the playoffs, I don't believe, and Darvin Ham probably will still play Wenyon over him. Also, in spite of the fact that AD gives Gobert problems on the offensive end, I'm just more concerned about AD having to expend so much energy boxing out in the paint, trying to fight for rebounds against all these trees, and just banging down low in general with all of these long limbs the Timberwolves have. So yeah, give me the Pelicans in spite of how hot they've been running recently, and they have been running hot. The Pelicans are 9-2 in their last 11, and Trey Murphy has been going off alongside Brandon Ingram. But even given all that, the Pelicans have had a pretty soft schedule recently, and by the time their schedule was supposed to have gotten harder in these last two weeks or so, they have caught teams at just the right time because those teams are now resting their star players, like what happened with the Memphis Grizzlies and then the Denver Nuggets. So yeah, I'd still rather have the New Orleans Pelicans as a whole. I'm a lot less scared about Jonas Valanciunas as a paint enforcer than I am Gobert, Towns, and all of the Timberwolves' wings. And when it comes to Brandon Ingram, we've seen Vanderbilt give him fits in the past. And with no Zion Williamson, I think we can really bait B.I. into becoming a ball-stopping, inefficient black hole. Lastly, Anthony Davis is always especially motivated going up against his former team. So yeah, give me the New Orleans Pelicans in the first play-in game if that's where we end up. And so my one biggest concern heading into the play-in and the playoffs in general is... I think with the lackadaisical way the Lakers have been playing recently, not having really locked in mentally since the Timberwolves game about a week ago, I think the Lakers are going to have some sort of a culture shock playing that first playoff intensity, high intensity game against a legitimate opponent, whether it be the Pelicans or the Timberwolves. And especially if it's the Pelicans, like I've said, the Pelicans have been locked in. They've won nine out of their last 11 They've been laser-focused and been taking care of business on their end, so they've got the momentum ball rolling. And if you contrast that to the Lakers, who have been, I think, running on fumes recently, they seem a bit burnt out just trying to get to this point, trying to get to this finish line, and as a result of that, I think the Lakers have kind of sputtered here in the last week and have looked a bit disjointed these last few games, and I mean, you obviously saw that come to a head in the overtime game against the Jazz, which really snowball their chances to have a competent chance to have a competitive game against the Clippers, and that sort of carried on to last night versus the Suns as well. So yeah, my one big worry right now is that I feel like we could potentially come out in that first half of game one of the play-in looking very rusty, and I think there's going to be a shock to our system where yeah, we're going to be surprised by the speed and intensity that the other team is playing at. It's one thing to have experienced vets like AD and LeBron James who have been to the playoffs multiple times, have been in high leverage game situations like countless of times, but it's another thing for their bodies, though, to sync itself up to this higher caliber of play 
and focus that they haven't been playing the last few games. So I think the competitive high-intensity muscle memory for the Lakers currently isn't there, and that would be that would be my main concern heading into the play-in. Can they lock in quick enough? Can their bodies lock in quick enough in that first half to really take advantage of their opponent and get the job done? Having said that, as it pertains to eventually moving on to the first round, if we're lucky enough to get there, in the sense of ramping back up into form, it may almost be a silver lining that the Lakers are forced to play a play-in game or two. Hopefully, it's just one. But yeah, it may be good for the Lakers to have at least one playoff dress rehearsal type game this upcoming week in order to really lock themselves into that sort of mode prior to round one of the playoffs versus them just sitting the entire week and not playing until next Sunday. Now, of course, you'd prefer the rest and recuperation that comes with being the sixth seed and avoiding the play-in entirely, but that also has its consequences with this particular Lakers team, who have shown that with too much time off between games, they always come out super rusty, acting like they've forgotten to play the game of basketball. So I think having at least one play-in game to serve as our playoff dress rehearsal may actually not be a bad thing. And then, of course, we get more time to see this group in action together and allowing the starting unit of Reeves, D'Angelo Russell, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Jared Vanderbilt to continue to gain that chemistry and momentum. So yeah, those are pretty much my thoughts on the... Lakers play in prospects. Um, why don't we take it to break here? And when we return, I'll get into some intriguing player specific stats that have caught my eye recently, and then we'll close it out from there. So, yeah, I will catch you guys after the term. All right, so we are back. To end this show, I want to throw out some interesting player specific stats that have caught my eye recently. Um, one big macro one that I forgot to mention at the top of this episode is. Whenever D'Angelo Russell, LeBron James, and Anthony Davis have started a game together, those three have a combined record of 6-1. and Now, it's been disjointed, there have been gaps in between that, and we haven't gotten the long stream of continuity that we've wanted, but 6-1 and is a pretty good record for our quote-unquote big three, quote-unquote big four, if you include Austin Reeves, so... I'm excited to see this team and this starting unit continue to gel health provided. Now, my first interesting Lakers player stat revolves around Jared Vanderbilt and his three-point shooting. In his last six games, Jared Vanderbilt is shooting six of ten from three-point land, hitting two threes apiece in three separate games, all from the baseline. Teams are really leaving Jared Vanderbilt wide open and I like that he's at least been aggressively taking that shot without hesitation. It hasn't necessarily forced the opponents to change the way that they're covering Jared Vanderbilt, but I just like that he's keeping them honest and we're getting points out of that, you know? And it does really seem like Jared Vanderbilt has that baseline three-point shot down. And if he can continue to hit at least... 1-3 every three games, I think that will really help keep the defense honest because he tends to really muck up our spacing down low in half-court sets. And believe it or not, this three-point shooting by Jared Vanderbilt is not all that fluky 
when you take a zoom out look at his season as a whole. Because Vanderbilt actually has a game this season versus the Blazers where he went 4 of 4 from three-point land. And on the season, he's actually hit a career-high 29 threes. He's making a career-high 0.43s a game. And he's shooting a career-high 32.6% from three. Obviously, all on low volume, but I think if he can hit one or two threes every three games, that should help this team out tremendously. And hopefully, this is an aspect of his game that he continues to hone this summer. Now, my next interesting player stat revolves around D'Angelo Russell and his shooting efficiency with the Lakers. You may have seen me post this on Twitter, but... With the Timberwolves, D'Angelo Russell was already shooting career-high numbers from the field and three-point land. He shot 46.5% overall, and he shot 39.1% from three-point land. Now, with the Lakers, he's shooting even better than those numbers. From the field, he's shooting 48.5% and 41.7% from three-point land while still hitting the same number of threes at 2.7 and essentially averaging the same points at 17.4 to 18 points that he was when he was with the Timberwolves. So, I mean, just really smart and efficient shot quality from D'Angelo Russell thus far during his Lakers tenure. He has been a calm and steadying presence on the offensive end, and sometimes you wish that he'd be more aggressive and less differential given all of those stellar shooting numbers especially because he still remains the Lakers' top mid-range shooter in terms of volume, and I think he's still number two in terms of percentage right behind Rui Hachimura. Now, the one thing that he has to improve upon, though, and the one shooting stat that did dip from his time with the Timberwolves is his free throw percentage. With the Timberwolves, he shot 85% from the stripe, But with the Lakers, he's only shooting 74%. But I feel like his free throw shooting has dipped just in the last couple games or so. Maybe you chalk that up to the fact that he's been in and out of the lineup and he hasn't been able to get a rhythm. But he's almost looked a bit Anthony Davis-like in terms of the hiccups he's been experiencing at the free throw line. But I'm pretty confident that he'll find a way to shore that up by the time we hit the play-in and playoffs. But overall, amazing shooting efficiency from D'Angelo Russell. Now, the next stat, the next player stat that jumps out to me that's a little bit more on the concerning side is, and this goes directly in contrast to what I just said about D'Angelo Russell's shooting efficiency, but let's talk about LeBron James' three-point shooting deficiencies. Because we are currently in the midst of one of LeBron's worst three-point shooting seasons in the last decade. This season, LeBron James is only shooting 31% from three. The last time he shot this poorly was in 2015-16 when he shot 30.9%. But back then, he was only attempting 3.73s a game. This year, he's attempting, and at times settling, for 6.73s a game. On top of the fact that LeBron James is older now and is more banged up, he's just naturally going to be more reliant on that 3-point shot to give him some reprieve. And the obvious concern here, though, is that Is LeBron James' three-point shot ever truly going to round into form in terms of efficiency by the time this is all said and done? Because so far, because of all the injuries and in and outs he's had to endure, he's never really been able to establish a consistent rhythm from the outside this season. He had one true stretch in November when he shot 37% from three and hit 22 threes in just eight games. 
but outside of that, it's been very bad below 30% shooting every other month. Now, the good news is he has hit his second best three-point stretch of the season in the four games he's played in April thus far, knocking down 11 threes and hitting 36% from three-point land. Now, that's a very small sample size, but at least it's somewhat trending in the right direction. So we just have to hope that this April is the start of an upward trend for LeBron James and his three-point shooting because if we can get some of those blow-up LeBron James games from the outside during the play-in and the playoffs, those are real game-changers. That opens up everything. Those That opens up the lanes for LeBron James to go in and just, you know, hammer down a ferocious dunk or throw a lob to Anthony Davis, and it just relieves our overall half-court offense in general. If he doesn't and his three-point shot remains middlingly the same at this 31% mark where he's still jacking up seven threes a game, then we may just have to endure some more of these inefficient poor halves by LeBron in the meantime as he continues to try to round himself into form. Now, I want to end this show on a positive stat, so let's talk about Austin Reeves. Um, Austin Reeves had another masterclass last night versus the Phoenix Suns. 9 of 13 from the field, 22 points, 5 assists, 1 steal. In April, Austin Reeves is averaging 22 points, 5.3 assists, 61% from the field, 47% from 3, 89% from the free throw line. 50-40-90, that is almost 60-50-90. Insane. But the stat that I really wanted to highlight for Austin Reeves is what he's done since the All-Star break in comparison to the rest of his 2021 draft class. So since the All-Star break, in comparison to his sophomore class that includes guys like Evan Mobley, Jalen Green, Franz Wagner, here is where Reeves ranks. Since the All-Star break, Austin Reeves ranks 5th in points at 17.8 points in comparison to his sophomore class. Jalen Green is number 1 at 23 points, then Trey Murphy, Evan Mobley, and Franz Wagner all averaging around 18 points, but Austin Reeves is 5th at 17.8 points per game. Austin Reeves ranks number 1 in field goal percentage of all players playing 20 minutes a game at 57.8% from the field. Evan Mobley, a center, ranks 2nd at 56.6% from the field since the All-Star break. That is unfathomable, that a guard is shooting better than a center in his same draft class. When it comes to assists, Austin Reeves ranks second in assists at 5.5 assists per game behind just Josh Giddy, who is averaging 6.8 assists since the All-Star break. Again, incredible. When it comes to overall net rating, since the All-Star break, Amongst his sophomore class, Austin Reeves ranks number one in overall net rating at 11.3 in terms of players who have averaged at least 20 minutes a game and are a regular fixture in their team's rotation. Evan Mobley is second with a net rating of 10, and Herb Jones is third with a net rating of 9, but Austin Reeves is your number one overall net rating player in the 2021-2022 draft class. Again, these are all post-All-Star break stats, the point in which Austin Reeves got the ball in his hands, absorbed more usage, and stepped up to the plate for a Lakers team that desperately needed him to in order to clinch their play in berth. An undrafted rookie. So yeah, clearly Austin Reeves is in elite company, whether it's with his own sophomore class or just the entire NBA in general. 
And Austin Reeves is unequivocally one of the best draft prospects of the 2021-2022 NBA draft class. In summary, Austin Reeves is everything, and we can only hope that he carries this play through to the play-in and playoffs when the lights are the brightest and the pressure is on. But knowing HBK, I don't have any reason to believe that he won't rise to the occasion. All right, with that said, thank you guys for listening to Solo Me Babylon. I hope to have Alan on for a pre- or post-playing game recap this upcoming week. And then I also hope to talk to Tommy about some potential round one Lakers playoff game. So crossing our fingers for that. Please shoot us a five-star rating and review on the Apple Podcast app, or just simply find us on Spotify and tap the five-star dial at the top of our page. We would greatly appreciate it. With that said, the Lakers have one more game to go. Job not finished. Let's go, Lakers, and let's end this season on a high note as we trek into play-in and playoff territory. All right, I will catch you guys later. (laughs) 